Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For 40 years, Rick Hammond has raised cattle and crops on his wife's fifth-generation farm. But as he prepares to hand off the operation to his daughter Megan and her husband Kyle, their entire way of life is under siege. Confronted by rising corporate ownership, encroaching pipelines, groundwater depletion, climate change, shifting trade policies, small farmers are often caught in the middle and fighting just to preserve their way of life. Journalist Ted Genoways uh, followed the Hammonds for a year from harvest to harvest. The result is a book, This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm. It's both the history of American agriculture and a portrait of one family's struggle to hold on to their a legacy. And uh, Ted Genoways is a contributing editor at Mother Jones, New Republic, Pacific Standard. His last book, The Chain, Farm, Factory, and the Fate of Our Food, was a finalist for the James Beard Foundation Award for Writing and Literature. His other honors include a National Press Club Award and other uh, awards, and uh, he's received fellowships from the NEA and Guggenheim Foundation. He lives outside Lincoln, Nebraska, with photographer Marianne Andre and their teenage uh, son. Ted uh, Genoways, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. We appreciate you uh, taking the time. Uh, you yourself have, uh, your family has farming background. Yes, definitely. I mean, my, my family has been here in Nebraska. Um, we can trace some branches back to, to 1851, so uh, before Nebraska was, was even a state. And so we have uh, deep roots here in the state, and, and for most of that time, uh, the members of my family have been farmers in, in various parts of the state. And um, the family farm lies at the, as the, I'm reading the blurb here for the book, the family farm lies at the heart of our national identity. Um, and so there's a lot of nostalgia, I think, a lot of people in general. Uh, many of us come from, you know, from farming background. My grandfather was a farmer, for example. But uh, that nostalgia is not shared by the, I guess, the small family farmer on the front lines there. It's true. I mean, I think that, that many of us, uh, especially those who, who came from farm families who have moved to cities in recent generations, continue to hold on to this vision of, of uh, farming as something uh, similar to what it was 50 or 100 years ago. And the reality is that, that farming has changed a great deal in that time. And, that, I mean, the biggest change is that that all of the development of labor-saving devices have really meant that that farmers have had to become uh, adept in, in new kinds of technology and have to take over uh, more of their their own business operations as well as um, all of the sort of technical side of the of that operation and. Um, also, as that mechanization has come into place, that means that there have been fewer and fewer farm hands, and so uh, each operation falls increasingly on the shoulders of, of a smaller group of people. And so, w- what we end up with is is a rural America now that is increasingly depopulated, where there are more and more acres being farmed, but fewer and fewer people doing it, and. That, of course, increases the, the pressures and the stresses and um, raises the stakes for each individual farmer. And so, you know, the, the farmers who remain are, are very much the ones who are in love with the land and in love with the work and the ones who are best at it and have been able to keep their families afloat. 
but it also means with with every passing season that uh, that those pressures and those challenges continue to mount. I want to get into talking about those. Uh, you wrote very descriptively. I want to have you uh, give me a version of least of this description. Uh, you drive across Nebraska these days after you know a century of industrialization of, of farming. And uh, you've, you've got some towns have disappeared, some towns on the verge of disappearing, um, vast stretches, uh, you know, a lot of crops, but, uh, but not many towns. It's depopulation that's happened. That's right. Yeah, I mean, just as one example that, that I feel um, deeply connected to, the, the town that my dad grew up in in western Nebraska, Baird, Nebraska, um, was... At the time that he was he was a kid growing up on farms outside of of the town, uh, it was a small but thriving farm community. It, you know they they had uh, a couple of factories in town uh, processing sugar beets, and um, they had all of the the sort of trappings of a small town uh, that would go with that. They had grocery stores and a movie theater and restaurants. Um, today. Uh, that community, like so many uh, in the western part of Nebraska, is really struggling. The the movie theater was gone before I I was a kid. It was still there and boarded up. But in my lifetime, I've watched the the, the restaurants close up. I've seen the the grocery stores disappear. Um, the and even in that town, which is is fortunate to have some larger communities nearby to kind of help support it, become a bedroom community for, for Scott's Bluff that's nearby. Um, they're still really, really struggling. And, um, and so it is a, it's a difficult uh, landscape these days because the, these communities um, are, are simultaneously facing the, the loss of some of their, uh, their best and brightest young people who who are drawn increasingly to the cities, um, and that brain drain is real. It's and it's and it's not just their intellect, but their energy that they take with them. Um, and many of these communities now are are aging and and struggling to survive. So you went in search of a, a farm family that would allow you to, I guess, follow them for for a year. You found the Hammonds. So first of all, why why did you? What was your goal? What did you want to uh, to do? Well, that's so. I I've been covering agriculture um, and and farming and meat production and you know just sort of different uh, kinds of issues surrounding food production in America for a number of years. And I think that that anyone who has followed these issues has certainly seen this kind of rising consciousness about um, how our food is made and and where it comes from. And what I saw was a, was a, a kind of shared inherent belief that, that if we made um, meat production more humane, if we made crop production more sustainable, that that would automatically benefit the farmers who, who raise those animals and those crops. The, the reality, though, that I was seeing was that very often uh, when the consumers would demand those sorts of changes, that there would be a, a top-down pressure from the corporations that really control a lot of food production, demanding that, that the farmers comply with, with what the new market demands were, um, which would often, in, in, rather than 
making things easier for them would place new burdens on them for for financial changes that they would have to make, uh, big changes in production that would be costly to them. And I couldn't help wondering what their perceived relationship was with with this kind of changing consumer base. And so I I wanted to spend a year with with a family that um, is facing some of these issues, and, and ideally a family like the Hammonds that that really care about those same issues that consumers care about. So that they're not resistant to these changes. They, they want to see improved uh, environmental practices and they want to see farming made more sustainable and, and all of those same sorts of, of goals. Um, but they also have this ground level view of what achieving those goals really means and how difficult it can be. Before we meet uh, Rick Hammond and his daughter Megan and uh, her now husband uh, Kyle Galloway, the, the main characters in your book, uh, I want to uh, have you respond to something uh, I think very important that you said. Um, you, you say we can't reshape the food, the food system by what we buy. I guess that that's a, an attitude I think a lot of us have. If we just, if enough of us will uh, will just, you know, buy the right to the the environmentally conscious products or whatever it might might be. Then the the food system will automatically uh, shift to uh, to support that. That's right. I mean, I, I, my feeling really is that that it's it is almost impossible to legislate from the grocery aisle. Um, that when we start talking about wanting to make large scale changes, um, you think about how much uh, something like a like organic products, how much that has grown in the last. 10 years. Um, nevertheless, it, it constitutes roughly 5% of, of consumer food products. It's still a tiny, tiny percentage. And so while it may be growing and it may be enough that now um, some of the large agribusiness interests take note, uh, it's still a, a really, really small share. And we really can't affect these kinds of changes um, from that level. My opinion is that if we want uh, sweeping changes that that farmers themselves can embrace and get behind, then what we need is is changes in, in ag policy. And that really means leadership out of the USDA. It means leadership out of the EPA. Um, and if we want those kinds of changes, we're talking about, we're talking about politics and we're talking about policy change. Um, and that really requires us to be actively engaged with these issues as citizens and not just simply as um, selective consumers. Hmm. So um, I understand that you found Rick Hammond and his family um, through uh, uh, through the Keystone XL Pipeline protest. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's right. I, um, my, my wife and I, um, she's a uh, Photographer, and we often work together, and we have been covering uh, Keystone XL and its proposed route across Nebraska for a number of years. And um, Nebraska has become the key battleground in that fight because many of the farmers and ranchers in the eastern part of the state have opposed the project out of concern for potential contamination of, of the groundwater and specifically of the Ogallala Aquifer that underlies um, much of Nebraska in the eastern part of the state. 
and is really the the source of of water uh, not only for human consumption but for irrigation and for uh, watering livestock. And so we had spent years with with farmers and ranchers hearing these concerns from them. And the thing that that Marianne was really the first to voice was that that while we we talked to a lot of people and got to know them over time, the thing that seemed to be really missing from the conversation was the deep connection that these farmers and ranchers feel to the land. That when a company like TransCanada comes in and says, uh, we're going to use eminent domain in order to secure a uh, an easement in perpetuity on your land, um, perpetuity really means something to these families. Um, many of these families uh, are living on pieces of ground that their ancestors homesteaded. They may have been there for 150 years or more. And so when someone says, we're going to own the right to, to put a pipeline across your property, we're going to hold the right to make changes to that pipeline to come onto your land anytime we need to, um, these farmers are, are not just looking at the short-term impact for themselves. They're thinking about their children and their grandchildren. And they have questions about, well, you know, what happens if this pipe rusts or corrodes 100 years from now? What's, what's going to happen to my grandchildren or great-grandchildren? How, what, what problem are they going to have to deal with? And we felt like that was a, a mentality and a mindset that was really missing from the conversation about these kinds of projects. And so we started talking together about this idea of, of following one family for a year so that you see the, the, the deep kind of seasonal connection that they have to the land, but also a year's time would give us the opportunity to get to know them well enough and to research and articulate their ancestral connection to the land um, to to bring that into the conversation. And so my my hope with the book is that it is both the narrative of a single year, but it's also a deep history of this one patch of ground going back to the 1860s. By the way, regarding the pipeline, of course, Rick and his daughter Megan, her, her then uh, boyfriend, fiance, uh, Kyle are opposing the pipeline. That's a view not shared by everyone, right? And there, there's there, there was a price that they had to that they paid, pretty steep price for their opposition. That's right. Yes, yeah, and that's really what sets up the tension at the beginning of the book is that that uh, that Rick and Megan had become vocal opponents to the pipeline, and in fact, um, they had done this this rather audacious thing of of allowing. Um, an anti-pipeline organization called Bold Nebraska to come in, help them build a barn directly along the line that had been sited by TransCanada where they planned to dig the trench and put the pipe. And that barn was outfitted with, with a wind turbine and with a uh, an array of solar panels. And, and, you know, Rick was very outspoken about saying, you know, that the pipeline that would cross Nebraska would not bring any energy production back to Nebraska, that the whole uh, plan behind the pipeline is to take Canadian tar sands and refine it on the Texas Gulf Coast and then ship it overseas. And he, he wanted to make the point that his little 
in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska would be producing more American energy than this giant pipeline project. Um, as you say, not all of his neighbors feel the same way. And some of them, uh, especially those who were feeling the financial pinch uh, of the moment, were eager for the, the easement payments that TransCanada was offering. And so Rick's neighbor directly to the south of where the energy barn was built um, and had rented that ground to Rick for many, many years, sent him a letter saying, I'm no longer going to rent you this ground. I'll, I'll rent it out to somebody else who, who shares my beliefs about the pipeline. And that, that land had been really critical to, to Rick's operation. And so just as, as Marianne and I were getting ready to spend the year with them, Rick was suddenly confronted with this, this financial strain. Um, and it came exactly at a moment when crop prices were plummeting as well. And so Rick now had less of a land base to produce from, and the, the price per bushel was going down precipitously. And so we arrived there just at the moment that they were facing a real financial crisis. I was just I was going to ask you what uh, why are the, are the neighbors supporting this? I guess it's it's the payment easement payments. They're 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 reaping the reward. I mean I think yeah I mean I think you know the the thing with farming always is that that it's this this balance between um, having one eye on two generations into the future and one eye on the horizon and and what storm clouds may be forming and what what a hailstorm might mean for your financial future uh, for that season. And so, you know, one of the, the, the balancing acts for farmers always is, you know, wh- where they are in their current financial state. And, and when you see farmers who take a firm stand against a project like this, it's because they have the financial resources at the moment to do so. And often when there are neighbors who are more receptive it's it's a reflection of of their financial state as well and so these arguments take on really deep emotional resonance because the uh, you know what we're often talking about is is not just the you know questions about the safety of a particular project or what have you but it's often you know freighted with this undercurrent of of worry about this this old family land and operation that may be facing a, a real financial crunch and a real threat at that moment. And uh, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, pick up that uh, thread. And um, you talk about, uh, I think you call it ghost lands. Um, some of the lands, if you purchase it, you refer to it by the name of the person you, you bought it from. And the fear is that, uh, you don't want, you know, you don't want your neighbor to be referring to, to the old Hammond, uh, um, homestead. Uh, in other words, the fear is you're, you know, sell your, your children and grandchildren's future. If you, if you get in a real bind, um, we'll talk about, and, and this quote from Ted Genoways, the reality is that many of the largest issues facing us today pass directly through farm country, uh, including world trade. Talk about those issues and many more following this break. 
Did you know that students with disabilities can go to college? Students from all over the nation with disabilities want to have careers, and many are taking college classes. As these young adults learn to socialize and interact with others, they live with roommates and receive support from mentors, tutors, and assistive technology. Students become more independent as they find internships and employment leading to meaningful career paths. Students with intellectual or developmental disabilities can thrive in a higher education environment as they explore the full college experience. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, talking with Ted Genoese. He's author of the book, This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm. Uh, he and his wife uh, were able to follow um, the Hammond family, uh, Rick Hammond and uh, his daughter, uh, Megan, and her uh, then fiance now uh, husband, Kyle Galloway, uh, a family farm in eastern Nebraska, a sparsely populated York County. And uh, it's a history of agriculture. It's also uh, following, of course, this specific family who stand in for uh, many uh, small American farmers. You're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We have uh, Ted Genoways with us for another uh, half an hour. Um, so I want to, to quote this, uh, Ted Genoways, you, uh, quote you. You say, we think of farming as being this kind of bucolic activity where the farmers are out in their fields, sort of away from the cares of the world, able to commune with nature and their crops, with livestock, and set the worries of the world aside. The reality is that many of the largest issues facing us today pass directly through the farm country. And I think that's bound up in our that nostalgia that we talked about earlier and the fact that this is at the heart of our national identity. Many of us have not been on the farm ever or for, for many years. And, uh, and so the, the very real problems that are present to the farmer out there are not present to us. That's exactly right. And, and I, I think it's, it's an interesting problem for farmers because on the one hand, um, the, the nostalgia that people feel, the, the loyalty that we feel to the farmer as, as a symbol of our American identity is central to um, some of the the ways in which we set policy and agree to collectively continue to support the American farm. Um, but because we don't have a real understanding, of, an accurate understanding of the way that farming is done today, very often um, the conversations end up going off course and, and veering away from uh, what is factually true, and it, it makes things... Um, difficult for the farmers themselves because the, the support that they're getting is is often based on on fantasies and uh, and based on on a kind of nostalgia for a non-existent farm, and at the same time the the real needs that they have go unaddressed because um, most Americans aren't even aware of them. I wonder if you could uh, take us through uh, some of the problems that the Hammonds are facing. 
uh, you know, there are myriad problems. And there's uh, early in the book, it's um, the, the prices are falling uh, steeply. That's because of what you would think was good news, right? Um, good weather, high crop yields. But for an individual farmer, that means prices go down. Rick Hammond says he, he finds himself praying that there will be crop problems in Chile, for example. Um, and there, there's a scene where Rick and uh, Kyle, his uh, future uh, son-in-law, are debating. Do we go out and harvest this uh, certain field of uh, soybeans tonight, or do we wait until morning? I guess it's that. The, the price would fall that much. That's right. Well, th- th- and that, that moment was really um, critical to, to reshaping my own understanding of, of just how high stakes and, um, and really quickly changeable the conditions are on the farm. Uh, on this particular evening, they were, they were harvesting soybeans um, and actually harvesting soybeans on a neighbor's um, acreage where they share costs um, on, on a rented harvester. And they were trying to make a decision about whether they would be able to continue to um, to harvest the soybeans that night. And some of the, the conversation has to do with the biology of the soybean itself as the, as the sun sets and the moisture in the air rises, the soybeans absorb that moisture and they become tougher uh, to harvest. And that becomes problematic also because there's a set moisture rate at which the soybeans have to be delivered to the, the grain elevator. So some of the conversation is about what the moisture levels are and um, how much they seem to be rising, what the temperature is, what the humidity in the air is. Um, but then the conversation was also about the fact that uh, that prices um, were were falling at that time and falling by the day. And Kyle was calling around uh, to grain elevators, which were uh, still buying at the, the closing price uh, that day at the Chicago Board of Trade, but was also then checking on his on his smartphone, looking to see what the, the prices were trading at for soybeans in China, and which gives you some impression of, of what's going to happen the next day at opening uh, in Chicago. And so the conversation was simultaneously about w- what the, the air temperature and moisture was in, in eastern Nebraska and about what commodities traders were doing in China at that, at that exact same moment. And the decision was made that because the prices were falling that, and they had a, an elevator that was willing to stay open and honor that day's price, that they would try to harvest into the darkness and um, and get those beans in and get that price, um, and then in as the the light was failing, Kyle um, accidentally hit the, the the platform of the center pivot irrigation system in the middle of the field and did a bunch of damage to the harvester. And so all of the money that they were hoping to to make up um, by continuing to work was wiped out in an instant. And despite that setback and despite that anger and frustration at that happening, they all pitched in and repaired the harvester right there in the dark in the middle of the field with nothing more than 
than you know a blowtorch and and a little bit of well applied brute strength, and that's the thing that I guess completely um, blows me away about the modern farmer that you've you've got to be able to with your your hands repair an incredibly complex piece of equipment at the same time that you're making all of the complex business decisions that any commodities trader uh, would be making. You, you've got to be an incredible businessman as well as a world-class mechanic. Hmm. And even preceding that, a decision that, uh, that Rick Hammond made earlier, that he's, he's going to plant a bunch of short-yield uh, soybeans, right? Because there's a premium if you get it in early. So he's, he's wanting to, but then weather intervenes and, uh, you know, all these problems. That's right. Yeah, I mean, every everything is a gamble, and I, you know, I had a a a cousin who was a, a farmer who he always said to me, you know, farmers are the biggest gamblers that that there are. I mean, that there's there's no one who takes more risks and and is playing the odds more with more at stake than than farmers, and and yes, this this particular year there had been years of drought. And Rick was guessing that there, there was going to be a, a dry season again, and so he he planted a, a variety of of soybeans that that mature quickly and that are a low moisture bean, and he gambled that he would be able to get those beans harvested and get them into the grain elevator um, before. That, that slump that always happens each season as the harvest comes in and, and the orders are filled. And Rick was right on the money about the whole year's weather uh, right up until the moment when it was time to get out and harvest when a series of rainstorms came through. The exact same thing happened this fall, in fact, and it's been a real uh, problem for farmers across Nebraska that these heavy rains came in and made the fields too wet to harvest. And so while the farmers are sitting in, in, in their living rooms looking out the window waiting for the clouds to clear, farmers elsewhere in America are, are bringing in their crops, and that abundance is driving down the prices that they, that they can get here. And so it's, it is always about taking calculated risks um, and then as if the if the the risk doesn't pay off if the gamble doesn't pay off then you've got to make up the difference with with hard work and hustle so i, I guess the uh, the advantage of uh, the large scale farming you know the the, the corporate uh, farming is that they can spread that risk wider they can it's a bigger organization they can they can bear that risk better well the the the, the real advantage to um to buying commercial seed from a big corporation um, is is really kind of the infrastructure that they provide. They, the companies have agronomists who make recommendations, um, and there's a lot of data that's being collected. Um, that you know, these days, as you go out in in a planter and and plant your seeds according to a you know a GPS guided prescription that's been entered into the the onboard computer it knows exactly which seeds are being planted in in which piece of ground almost down to the square inch 
and then when the harvester passes over and and harvests those those crops uh, months later, that same system is is making note of what the yield was. And over time, you've got a, a huge data set that that tells you which hybrids and which varieties are performing best in not just in which field, but in which part of, of individual fields. And the the big companies are collecting all that data. They, that data is available to the farmers if they're working with those companies. And they've got professionals who then are looking at all of that and making recommendations. And, you know, if you're if your whole operation depends on trying to get just a few more bushels of soybeans or a few more bushels of corn than your neighbors are getting, then having expert input and having a company that has a wide variety of, of seeds available, um, it may be the critical difference in, just in making just a little bit more uh, on your margin so that you turn a profit rather than feeling a loss. Now, Rick and his family, they they tried organic, right? They've tried some grass-fed beef. They've uh, tried to respond to some of these things that some consumers are, are saying are very in, important. Um, but at this point, um, Rick is um, he's involved in, in growing, what, uh, I think, GMO corn seed? That's right. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, the Hammonds are, are a really interesting case because they – they really are progressive in all sorts of ways, and they are they are concerned about the environment and sustainability. Um, maybe as I mean, Rick always says that that if if he were a, a one issue voter, the environment would be his issue. Um, but the challenge that that they face is real. That that if you are going to try to plant organic corn, for example. Um, in the area that the Hammonds are farming, they're surrounded by by GMO commercial crops on all sides, and what that means is um, that that you have additional challenges when you're trying to to raise organic crops. Not only do you have to um, go through a, a period of three years where you're raising the crop, and it can't be certified as organic, which means that you're getting a lower yield because you're not using the industrial methods, but you're also not able to claim the premium that the organic gives you. But also, uh, as the, the the process it, it, you know, sort of marches forward, you're, you're surrounded by neighbors who are spraying herbicides, spraying pesticides that could affect your crops, and you're required then to to leave strips around your field. So your field actually gets physically smaller. And the way things stand, um, for the Hammonds at least, as they tried to make some of that conversion, they couldn't get enough of a premium for organic crops uh, to offset the losses that they were having in depressed yield and in reduced acreage. And this gets back to what I was talking about with, with policy issues. If what we want is for more farmers to be raising organic crops, then we have to, as just sort of a basic starting point, make organic at least as profitable for the farmer as, as conventional crops are. Otherwise, you're asking people to take a, a financial loss and to risk their birthright um, just to satisfy 
a market demand. And I, I don't think that many of us would be willing to to take a loss in our salary, to risk losing our house in order to to, to satisfy the demands of, of the marketplace that we serve. So then how, uh, how to, uh, I guess, uh, make sure that uh, farmers who are doing organic are, are, are making the profits that they need? Is, it, is that higher prices? Is that, uh... I think it's, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, prices are probably, I mean, one of the, the, the challenges that, that these farmers face, and I've heard this out of organic growers too, that they'll say, you know, that they spend a lot of time raising organic crops, take them to the farmer's market, and that they hear people all day walking through the farmer's market and looking at the price of their tomatoes and saying, well, I can get them for half this amount at the grocery store. Um, so part of it is that we as consumers have to be willing to, to pay that premium to uh, support this kind of, of agriculture, but also recognizing that not every consumer can do that and that then we're having issues of, uh, you know, we're moving into, the, into areas of, of class issues. We want high-quality, nutritious food to be available to everyone. And so then we're talking about how the government spends and, and what sort of supports uh, the USDA is giving. Um, and so, you know, that has to do with, with what kind of leadership we're selecting. And there's no question that, that one of the central mysteries to me of, of our current political situation is that, that farmers uh, across America, um, by a margin of almost three to one, voted for the Trump administration, voted for Trump as president. And yet, Trump was out promising that he would that he would end the international trade deals that many of those farmers rely on, and the the only thing that I can say that I've heard out of farmers is that they they didn't think that Trump was serious when he said he would cancel TPP, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that they were hoping would open up new markets in Asia for corn and soybeans. They didn't believe him when he said that that he would cancel NAFTA, uh, which is is currently responsible for uh, sending almost a quarter of our corn production in America to Mexico. They thought that this was kind of saber-rattling that, that would allow renegotiation of these deals and would, and would get them better prices overseas. And now suddenly they're, they're in this odd position of, of realizing that they've elected someone who doesn't really understand the farm economy and is not committed to the trade deals that that the farm economy relies on. Uh, having said that, that's interesting. Um, do you think there will be a shift in farm country come 2020? I think that that's, that's a possibility. And I think that, that it's a, uh, a question that, that, that really remains open. I think it will, it will depend a great deal on how the, the, the farm economy fares through the next few years. I mean, one of, one of the things that is, is happening almost invisibly in this country right now is that because prices are down so low, I mean, prices right now are about 50% of what they were just five years ago. And so farmers who took out loans, uh, as they were encouraged to do when prices were high, um, and, and bought center pivot irrigation systems and built new barns and 
bought tractors. Um, they all have huge debts that they've taken on, and their farmland is now producing half the income it was just a few years ago. And what that means is that those debts are not being serviced, um, that, that the principal is not being spent down, that they're just paying the interest. And in some cases, in many cases, they're taking out additional loans um, to, to pay off just daily uh, operating costs. And so we've arrived at a point where farm debt in this country is, is higher than it's been at any point since the farm crisis of the 1980s. And so we're, we're at a moment where there's, there's a real risk of a kind of cascading effect if there, if there should start to be uh, farm failures. And I do think that if, if the farm economy suffers a major hit the way it did in the 1980s, that, that farmers would certainly be looking to, uh, to other leadership and to other ideas um, rather than, than sticking with, with the, the leaders who, um, who brought them to this particular crisis. Let's take another break. We're talking with Ted Genoways. His book is This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm. When we come back, I want to talk about succession. Um, the daughter, Megan, had, had moved away, and it, I think she had uh, assumed she wasn't going to go back to the farm, but she ends up back there. Um, and uh, this is an interesting uh, tidbit that I learned, that uh, succession is a very fraught period, and it can last years and years, and there can be frustrations between family members. Psychiatrists can be brought in. I want to talk about, uh, about that more following this break. This is Professor Beth Fouth for Bringing More to Life. What is empathy? It includes taking your aging parent's perspective and recognizing your parent's view as their truth, staying out of judgment, recognizing emotions and communicating that understanding to them. It is feeling with another person. It's being vulnerable to that same hurt or loneliness or loss they are expressing. Being empathetic takes time and effort. In our busy days, as we balance our needs with the needs of our parents, it can be lost. Sharing feelings can bring more to their life in ways you never knew. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Ted Genoways, author of This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm. By the way, uh, you can go to uh, the website, uh, tedgenoways.com, and uh, see some uh, some photographs uh, his, uh, his wife took out there on the, on the Hammond Farm, and those uh, photographs are in the book as well. Um, I want to talk uh, to Genoways about succession. This is a uh, uh, you know, something that the family farm, uh, each uh, each family farm and family faces. Um, and you uh, enlightened me that this can be a, a very fraught process um, because the older generation has trouble letting go. The younger generation wants to take over. This can, this can last years or it can be frustrations. Uh, sometimes you have to turn to a psychiatrist. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the... 
that process, that that handing over of the operation is is incredibly difficult for everyone involved. The older generation, of course, is struggling to let go of something that has been entrusted to them for very often most of their adult lives, and to trust their kids then to make the right choices that will allow the tradition that they're passing down to continue and to thrive. The younger generation, of course, I think we can all identify with this, um, we, that, that younger group sort of tends to uh, bristle at, at what's seen as, as meddling or second-guessing. And, and, um, and on top of that, then, uh, because families are often living if not on the same piece of ground, at least on adjoining uh, farms, anytime something goes wrong, anytime there's just the slightest misstep, you feel like the previous generations are there with eyes on you. And, um, and so everyone feels um, sort of under the gun and, un, and under scrutiny. And as you say, there, because of all of the, the resentment and the infighting that this can cause, uh, there are whole psychiatric practices that are built around counseling farm families through this process. And there are also attorneys who build practices around helping families navigate this transition because it, it is, has all of the challenges that normal estate planning has for families. But on top of it, it is the business and the livelihood for almost everyone involved. And so the stakes couldn't be higher, the, the emotions couldn't be higher, and um, it's an incredibly difficult time. Um, I wonder, you know, through the program here, we have uh, said that it's, it's, it's not the nostalgic life that some of us uh, still have in our minds, and we've painted pictures of uh, stress, a lot of stress. Um, so maybe uh, individually with Megan, the, the daughter, she went away to Omaha and I think was not planning to come back. She has come back, and in fact, she and her now husband Kyle are they're, they're planning on uh, being the next generation. Why, why did she come back? Yeah, Megan's uh, circumstances are are especially complex and and to me poignant. Um, Megan uh, had said that you know, you know, first I think you have to really appreciate Me- Megan is really wonderfully brash and outspoken, and she always said that when she was a kid, she was sure that as soon as she had the chance, she was never going to poop any more scoop in the barn. She was never going to have to sort cattle ever again, that she was going to get away from all of the sort of muddy, dirty work of the farm and get to the city and do something else. Um, as it happened, just as Megan was starting starting college, um, her high school boyfriend uh, was going away to Iraq. And um, and he was killed in Iraq by, by a roadside bomb after he had been there only a short time. And that event um, was, was devastating for Megan. She came home, uh, spent some time trying to kind of recuperate and and heal on the farm and I think in that time discovered this this kind of solace that could be found in 
knowing that other generations, previous generations, had suffered on that same land and had gotten through it. And she drew something, drew some strength from, uh, from that knowledge. And at the same time, uh, she had met Kyle and had recommended that uh, Kyle talk to her dad because Rick was looking for some help on the farm. And so Kyle was around and was proving himself to be extremely helpful to Rick and was helping uh, the, the farm thrive. And um, at the same time that Megan was, was falling in love with Kyle, I think she was also falling in love again with, with the farm that sustained her through that, that really hard time. And uh, so I think she's the fifth generation, and now she has a daughter. That's the sixth generation. Have I got that right? Yeah, actually, Megan is six, and and, and, and their daughter is number seven. Number seven. Um, so I want yes. to get get into uh, Rick. Especially has uh, you've you've said this before in the hour. Uh, he has he he takes the long view. He 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 really knows the history of of, of the farm going back through his generations, and he looks out now through Megan and and through Megan's daughter. Um, and uh, all these problems, I, I think the central focus for him is keeping that land in the family and, and continuing the the operation. That's exactly right. And 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 for him, thankfully, it it's a broad view of of those things. That while he wants to protect the the operation uh, from a kind of position of self interest, he also recognizes that that. The best way for the family to survive and to thrive on that land is to do what's best for the land itself. And so Rick has a very deep concern about groundwater depletion and about, you know, caring for the water quality of the surface water. And he cares a great deal about how the the, the ecosystem is, is being affected. To me, it seems quite telling that Rick, when he was acquiring property when he was younger uh, around that, that central farm. The piece of ground that he chose to build his house on for his wife Heidi and planning to retire there overlooks uh, a place that was where the, 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 the Pawnee and the, uh, had previously um, kept as a vista for, for a burial site um, for hundreds of years, and Rick's view of this is that that, that view of the Platte River Valley, that view of, of the land that has sustained him and his family, um, that land has been there long, long before the, the white settlers moved out there, and it was there long before even the nomadic tribes came on and, and relied on that land. And so his view is that it's his responsibility to steward that land and to make sure that it's there to sustain the generations that follow. Just have about a minute left. I wonder, having spent a year with the Hammonds, looking at the you know, history of agriculture and I'm sure thinking about the future as well, what, uh, hopeful, not so hopeful about the future of the family farm? Well, I... I think that there's that there's hope to be found in the, in the hard work and the commitment that the people who are doing this this farming feel. Um, I guess I would feel more despair if if they weren't themselves hopeful. And you know, Rick always said that every farmer every spring has to believe that this is going to be the best crop ever. And as long as they maintain that optimism, I think 
that what we can do is match that enthusiasm and and do what we can to be in more conversation with farmers so that we know the right way to support them and help them succeed. The book is This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of an American Family Farm. The author is Ted Genoways, and he has joined us for the hour. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Learning Life's Lessons. My name is Nick Alvarado. I am from Fort Worth, Texas. My career afforded me the opportunity to travel to many countries around the world. A universal observation for anyone traveling is how a smile or saying hello and thank you in your host country's language will often open many doors and often make that first impression of an American visitor a positive one. I was taught a smile, a polite nod of my head, or a kind word will open so many more doors than a frown, a look of indifference, or angry words directed at someone. Treat everyone as you would like them to treat you. Learning Life's Lessons on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU University Inn and Conference Center Summer Citizens Program, celebrating 40 years of living and learning at the top of Utah. Information at summercitizens.usu.edu. service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Heard online at upr.org.